Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome. Come on in. Grab a seat. We'll get started here. So we're happy to see all the faces, to hear the chatter. Welcome once again. Welcome, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Happy uh, Thanksgiving week to you all. Thanks for joining us in worship this morning. Uh, once again, my name is Chris. I'm happy you're here. Uh, as we get started in worship, just to prepare our own hearts and uh, to quiet our hearts before the Lord, we'll spend a few moments just in silent prayer. So please bow your heads and, and do that with me now. Let's pray. chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So, Father, this morning as we come uh, together to worship you, as we uh, come into your presence this morning, Lord, help us to return to you in our hearts, to, to, to rend our hearts, to, to turn away from the sins and the idols, uh, from all the places that we've tarried and, and wandered this week. Help us to return to you and, and leave everything to, to praise and give ourselves to you, that the world may not ask us, where is our God? but they might know us as your people. They might know us as people who love you and serve you and praise you. So help us to do that together this morning as your congregation. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand and sing with us. This is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice as we lift His name. This is the day that the Lord has made. Come and rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Whether the sun will shine, whether the skies will rain, I know that you are good, and this is the day you made. Whether in life or death, whether in joy or 
This is the day you made. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice as we lift His name. This is the day that the Lord has made. Come and rejoice. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now I can walk in faith. You will protect my way. Your every work is good. And this is the day you made. I am a child of yours. You are the one who saves. I am redeemed by love, this is the day you made, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice as we lift his name, this is the day that the Lord has made, come and rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad. Come and sing your praise For the Lord now reigns On the throne of grace Soon is the day He will bring us home And we have this hope For we are His own This is the day Come and sing your praise For the Lord now reigns on the throne of grace soon is the day he will bring us home and we have this hope for we are his own this is the day that the lord has made we will rejoice as we lift his name this is the day that the Lord has made. Come and rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Come and rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Whether the sun will shine, whether the skies will rain, I know that you are good. This is the day you
whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Continue on in our worship, just a few uh, family uh, announcements and things to update you all on. Uh, just a few announcements. You can check out the bulletin, check out the welcome table, check out the website, waymouthchurch.com, Church Center app to keep up to date with some of these things. Uh, there's a number of things happening over this holiday season uh, as we anticipate Christmas. Um, uh, the, the first is that we have these uh, Live Inspired stockings. Live Inspired is a ministry that we support as a church uh, that uh, helps provide uh, training and care for, for parents and young kids, particularly with uh, literacy. And so we've put together these, these stockings for Live Inspired. You can find them on the welcome table in the back. And uh, in the stockings, there's a wish list from different families that uh, are part of Live Inspired, just with three books that they're requesting for their kids for Christmas. And uh, we're partnering with Live Inspired to, to deliver those books. So if you signed up to do that already, um, you, we, you can get your, your stocking. Um, and, and fill it up and get the books and bring it back. Uh, if you haven't signed up, you can still sign up online or at the welcome or you can just go and, and take a stocking today. All that we ask is that if you take a stocking, please still sign up so we know who's taken one out, so we know who to uh, badger and chase around if we need to to get you to bring it back before Christmas. Um, so be sure to check that out at the welcome table. Get your stocking if you signed up. Get it one if you haven't signed up. Just be sure to sign up so that we know who took one and who to expect one back. So go take the stocking, get the three books, fill it up, bring it back, and then we'll, we'll deliver it to Live Inspired. Uh, so we're, we're excited about that, that partnership, that outreach this Christmas. Um, also, thinking about Christmas, uh, a couple announcements there. Uh, we are having a Christmas celebration on the 17th of December. That's the Sunday before Christmas Eve. That's going to be a time where the kids are going to be singing some songs in the service. And then we're going to have Christmas cookies and, and hot chocolate after the service. That's a great chance to invite in the community, invite in friends, neighbors, grandparents, aunts, uncles to come hear the kids sing and then and stick around afterwards for some, some Christmas fun together in the community room. And then as far as actual Christmas Eve goes on December 24th, which is a Sunday this year, uh, well, our plan as a church is we'll have our normal 10.30 a.m. worship service on December 24th, and then we'll also have an evening service at 6 p.m., 
on the 24th. So we'll have a morning service on Christmas Eve at our normal time, 10.30, and then we'll have an evening service at 6 p.m. Uh, as, as well on Christmas Eve. So we'll gather together uh, at the opening and the close of Christmas Eve as a church family. And then thinking about the other holiday that I keep forgetting about, because I feel like we're already thinking about Christmas, but Thanksgiving is this week. Um, so one thing to just note of with Thanksgiving this week is our, uh, many of our normal Wednesday night uh, classes are, will not be happening this week. So our youth class, uh, our kids class, Weymouth kids, Weymouth students, Parent Connect will not be meeting this Wednesday night. Um, and if you're a part of the prayer group that meets on Wednesday night, I think they're still deciding, or did you get, oh, you're not? Okay. So nothing's happening Wednesday night. Don't come here. Um, <laughs> Go be with your families and your friends. So everything, our normal Wednesday night stuff will not be happening. Enjoy the, the time with your family on Thanksgiving. Um, and then finally, another uh, outreach we are doing this Christmas is we are going to be hosting international students. So these are students from colleges uh, in the Ohio area and around us um, that will be coming in and just for a weekend, the 15th, 16th, and 17th, to just uh, come and, and spend some time with some families. And Elaine Jackson, if you guys want to come up and, and just share a little bit about your experience here, hosting international students. <laughs> oh, that's cute. All right. Oh, it's cute that he tripped. That's, that's no, it's, right. cute that he, it's cute that he went up to his sister. <laughs> it was funny that he tripped, yeah. Funny that he tripped, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thanks for coming up. Uh, Doug and Light, Jen Light, you want to go over there? That way it makes it easy. I don't have to pass the mic the between you. Yeah, we got to share the mic here. What are you do? When did you get up here? <laughs> right. All right. So maybe just if each of you could just introduce yourselves, tell us who you are, who you're, you know, connected Hello. to. Thank you. Um, and then how, who you are, and then how long have you been a part of the Weymouth family here? Doug Varner. And uh, my wife Emily's not here today, but Eleanor and Seth are up there. Um, and we've been at Weymouth for almost 17 years? 16 years, 16 years. I'm Elaine Jackson, and I'm here, I don't remember how long, I remember it was Father's Day the first time I came, but it's, it's close to 30. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, so maybe tell us a little bit about how many times have you hosted, and what is that experience like hosting? International yeah, I, I actually can't count. I was trying to think how many students have come through our house, and it's north of eight or nine, probably around, but south of a dozen, I think, at least mm-hmm. for my family. Yeah, I think I've hosted every year except maybe one. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I don't know. Quite, quite a few, but yes. So, so when you host a student and you bring them in, what kind of stuff do you do with them over the course of the weekend? So the... There's a gamut, right, of what right, you could yeah. do. But mm-hmm. um, what we typically do, um, mm-hmm. often that in, falls on the same weekend as mm-hmm. a choir concert that my mm-hmm. family participates right. in awesome. uh, at Summit Choral Society down in, in mm-hmm. Akron. And so Ellen typically is performing three nights in a row there, and Seth okay. then on Sunday morning, wow. or Sunday afternoon. It's a lot and of choir. It's a lot of choir, yeah. yeah. But um, so Arco, who's been uh, mm. the student that has come and stayed with us the last two times yeah. and is coming back this winter, uh, mm. is going to join us as we mm-hmm. not go to all three performances with him, but definitely mm-hmm. take him on Sunday. Um, awesome. We are planning a gathering at our house for any of the students that come and the families that are hosting on Friday night when they arrive. Um, So that takes care of Friday night food and kind of entertainment. There you go. And then um, Saturday, uh, what typically happens, and you can see up here on the pictures, these are families and friends that that Emily and I Mm. and Elaine have hosted in the 
I guess it's your left side. <laughs> yeah, your left side are the cows um, that Elaine hosted several years ago, mm. and we've gotten to know. And mm. um, so the three of us, or the three family groups, did mm -hmm. often many things together mm. and stayed connected past just that weekend. Yeah. Um, but typically on that Saturday, a couple of mm -hmm. the family groups may get together and have a nice. pseudo Christmas meal together, right? Mm -hmm. We normally scale it down a little bit, mm -hmm. um, mm. or a lot actually, but, but yeah. give them kind of a gist mm -hmm. of what a typical American Christmas mm -hmm. meal might feel That's like. That's cool. That's really cool. What other things have you done? Yeah. Uh, I look for things that are going on regionally. Uh, we have a very culturally rich area and mm. taking them to concerts. Um, there mm. was a Ukrainian concert that I took my students mm. to. There's Stan Hewitt. There's generally things going on, but I have to tell you the thing that's most fun is doing things with you guys, mm. with our students. It's just, cool. and it's wonderful because we get to mingle and get to know mm -hmm. each other better. Mm -hmm. um, so awesome. yeah, we really enjoy, you know, who are, who's the host family? What are you doing? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And yeah. trying to figure out something to do together. That's amazing. That's really cool. You guys kind of hit on this already. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, climbing the stairs backwards. Uh, maybe just one highlight from each of you from your time hosting that really stands out. If you could pick one, doesn't you know, whatever comes to I, mind first. You know, we the highlights are, are different for every year, yeah. right? Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that we've often done mm -hmm. is make hot cocoa, yeah. put it into go cups, hmm. hop in the car at dusk, mm -hmm. and drive around and look at Christmas lights, and or um, go to yeah. the county fairgrounds yeah. to look at those Christmas lights too. Um, which is really fun, but I think the thing that sticks with me and is um, mm. probably the most touching is the relationships, right? Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. know Arco, mm. right, if mm. it wasn't for this. That's and awesome. he is a beautiful person, mm. and he's looking, you know, he's mm -hmm. staying connected with IFI there. Cool. He loves to come and visit us, um, and uh, mm -hmm. that has definitely been just a That's highlight. Amazing. Yeah. Now you say IFI, who is IFI? International Friends. Mike, what's the last I? Incorporated. Incorporated. Um, they're a mission group uh, that is on Ohio State's campus okay. that is trying to disciple and yeah. grow um, awesome. international students who are here mm -hmm. so that the gospel can be taken back with them mm -hmm. when they go back. And, um, or if they go back, most of them do. And mm. um, yeah, there's, they have story upon story upon story mm. of individuals mm. that have come, young adults, mm -hmm. become Christians, been discipled mm -hmm. here, and then mm -hmm. gone back and, and stayed connected in, in Christian community in their home country. That's, a, that's really cool. I think one of the compelling reasons for me to do this is the Great Commission, that we're to make uh, disciples in every nation, every tribe, every tongue. I'm not going to go to these countries, but they're coming here. And these students, they're separated. They can't go back home, you know? And so they're stranded on a college campus somewhere where I don't know if the cafeterias are even open, mm. and most of them don't have cars. And this is a wonderful opportunity for us to show the love of Christ to the nations. Mm. And the, the Cal family, they were Buddhist, and we had many, many conversations. And I remember talking with uh, Jin Kiao, who's the father, and he's a, a PhD educator, and mm. his wife has a master's degree 
educator, and they were telling us how the hope of the future is in education. And <clears throat> I just made this offhand comment that education changes minds, but Jesus changes hearts. They've become Christian. Hmm. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it is. And I'm not taking credit for that, but I think I'm listening to the Holy Spirit hmm. who spoke that hmm. truth into the, their lives. And <clears throat> a few years ago, I had uh, visiting scholars from a hostile nation, which I am not going to name because this goes out on the internet and I don't want to put anybody in danger. It was a very hostile nation and I support ministries that help the persecuted church and I called them and I said, I'm having people from this nation, what sh you know, should I hide all your literature and, you know, are there any certain precautions that I should be taking? And they said, yes, hide our literature. That's how hostile this nation was. Anyway, um, one of the people who was visiting was having a crisis at, mm. at home, and she was very, very worried about it. And I had three people, and I didn't know if they knew each other. I didn't know how much secrecy they needed to keep mm. among themselves or from each other. And at a moment that I had alone with this person who was having a crisis, she said, would you pray to the God for me? And I go, okay. <laughs> you know, and I said, do you know the God? And she said, no, but I want to. <laughs> How often do we have opportunities like that? And so all three of these people were really eager to know. And I keep the Children's Storybook Bible. What is the name of that? The Storybook Bible. The Storybook Bible. That is the best basic theology text ever to explain the crimson thread of redemption through history. And I keep a pile of them in my home, and they all took them home. They came to church. They took notes. And they had to translate. And I'm looking. Greg was talking about tithing, of all things, on that Sunday. Hmm. And I'm thinking, why did he choose that message? Because it was the next in line and where he was preaching. But mm -hmm. as I was looking at what my guest was translating, she was writing down all these words that actually when she would think about them, like redemption and mm -hmm. atonement and things like that, they were all there, and she got a gospel message. It's, it's just it gives me goosebumps mm -hmm. to think about this is an opportunity to reach the nations. That's huge. Yeah, they're coming right, we're welcoming them as Christ has welcomed us. That's the whole idea. That's amazing, yeah. right? So we're, we're praying to be able to host uh, at least 10 students this year. So we're looking for more people to host. If you do, you already got Friday night dinner taken care of, right? So, and if so. you want to join us at the concerts, let us know. Yeah, like, absolutely. We're willing to... Yeah work around and, and help out in any way we can. That's awesome. Well, let me do this. Let me uh, pray for us, pray for the, the students, pray for the nations, and then uh, we'll do our children's lesson, right? So let's pray. <laughs> oh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for IFI and uh, the, the partnership we have with them. We thank you for the way that they are uh, reaching out to international students and seeking to share your love and your truth with them. We thank you for the, the role we can play in that, even just over a weekend and uh, so we thank you for, for the Varners, we thank you for, for Elaine and, and all their hosting and all their 
uh, welcoming they've done in the past, Lord, and the way you've used them to uh, help people hear the gospel or believe the gospel. We pray that you'll do that again this year as you'll bring more hosts and more students and you'll give us the chance over the Christmas season to uh, explain who Christ is and why he came and, and why that matters. And, and uh, you'll lead more people to faith in Christ and you'll lead them to take the gospel back to their home countries and to their families and their neighbors and friends. Um, so we just pray that you'll use this ministry, that you'll use this opportunity. You'll help us to continue to, to pray for the nations and to seek ways to share your love with the nations that more people might come to know Christ, Lord. We lift all this up in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, you guys can stay up here because we're going to do our children's lesson now. So if you want to grab a seat, any other kids that want to come on up? Fifth grade and below. Well, you have to sit on the end. Why do I always have to sit on the end? Yeah, you like to be in the center. All right. Yeah, come on up. Have a seat. We'll keep going with our catechism. I sit on the end. Yeah. I sit there. All right. Good morning, guys. Hello, hello, welcome, come on up. Here we are, look at this crew. All right, you guys excited for Thanksgiving? Ah, where you come from? <laughs> nice, that's sneaky. I scared sneaky. you. You did scare me. All right, uh, are you guys excited for Thanksgiving this week? Yeah. Yeah? No. What are you more excited about, eating turkey or not having school? Turkey, yeah? No. Eating mashed potatoes. You like mashed You don't like it. Yes, I do. All right, we'll see. My grandma. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how you do. Grandma, you like your grandma. Yeah, yeah. she makes good mashed Nana makes good mashed potatoes. All right, you guys, well, we are on question 50 this week, all right? We only have two more to go after this. Isn't that crazy? Uh, we almost made it through the whole yeah. catechism. Not crazy yet. Not fair. Um, all right, so I'm going to read our question for us this morning and the answer, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. But the question is this. What does Christ's resurrection mean for us? And the answer is that Christ triumphed in sin and, over sin and death. He triumphed over sin and death so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. All right, so there's a lot of big words in there. The first one being Christ's resurrection. Who knows what Christ's resurrection, what does that mean? Yeah. When he rose from the dead. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead, right? So he died on the cross, he was buried in a tomb, and then he rose again, he came back to life. And that's a really, really important truth that we believe as Christians. And to help us understand why it's important, I want to know, raise your hand if you've ever won a championship of any kind, like soccer, baseball, soccer. a video game thing that you won or something. Yeah, right? So when, when you win like a championship, how do you feel? Is that exciting or not exciting? Happy? Yeah, exciting. Absolutely, it's exciting. I played baseball for 11 years. I was in Little League. I was never very good, but... Told you that before. Um, but when I was like eight or nine, my team actually won the Little League championship. It was like the one time I ever got a trophy like in my life. Um, and I, just, I don't know where that trophy went, but uh, uh, I got the game ball one game. It was awesome. Um, I don't have it anymore. Um, <laughs> right? So when that feeling of, of winning, of triumphing, of getting a victory, that's really, really exciting. You're like, okay, I have beaten all the other teams. I have beaten all the other competitors. I have won this tournament or won this championship. And that word triumph there in the question where it says Christ triumphed over sin and death, that's just, that word just means victory. It means winning. It means Jesus won the championship over our sin, all the ways we rebel against God, over uh, death, the fact that we die because of our sin. And the way he did that was by rising again. When Jesus rose again, it was like winning the greatest championship, the greatest victory that's ever been won, right? He defeated our great opponents, our great enemies, which are our sin and which are death. So if you believe in Jesus because he both died and because he rose again, 
then you can share in that victory. Jesus' victory, Jesus' championship wasn't just for himself, it was for all of us. We all get, if you believe in Jesus, we all get his trophy, we all get his medal, we all get his life. And so that means we get life with him now, we get to know him, we get to walk with him, but it also means we'll have eternal life with him. It means when we die, we'll spend forever in heaven with him. Because, not because of our victory, because of what we've won, but because of Jesus' victory, because of what he won for us in his death and ultimately in his resurrection. And so that's why the resurrection is so important because it is Jesus' ultimate victory, ultimate championship over our great enemies. And it's his victory that if we believe in him, we can share in that victory, we can share in that championship, we can get the, the trophy of eternal life with him. Does that make sense? Sound good? Yes. All right. So if you believe in Jesus, then we've all won the biggest, the greatest thing we could ever win, right? And that's worth celebrating. So that's what we do as a church as we sing together. Yeah, I see that. Very good. All right, well, let me pray now for us, and then you guys will go to Weymouth Kids, and we'll keep celebrating that victory together. So let's pray. All right, let's pray. Well, gracious God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the victory that you've given us in Jesus. We thank you for... Uh, his resurrection over sin and death for the triumph, the life we have in him. We thank you that we can share in his victory, we can share in his life, we can share in all the the medals and all the the trophies that he deserves because he came and died in our place and rose again. So help us to believe in him, help us to praise you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy in Christ, our Savior, our Victor, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well now it's time you guys can go to, to Weymouth Kids with Mrs. Martin. No, go, go, go. And then the rest of us will stand and we'll sing together. By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design in the lives of those who prove his faith Deliver captives and to preach good news. 
Because you sent our son to save us from our sins, that we can walk by faith and not by sight, Lord. Thank you for that beautiful message that um, we don't have to see you to believe in you, Lord, that you are, you are all around us and everything that, that we see, Lord. I pray that you would also be present in all that we do and all that we say and all that we think. Lord, I pray that, um, that we would take your word to heart this morning and that we would take it out into the world with us. Lord, I pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Right. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. We will be finishing our, our series in the book of Jonah this morning, uh, which we've been going through over the last four or five weeks. Uh, Jonah chapter 4. We'll look at uh, all 11 verses here this morning, and then, uh, God willing, as we gather together next week, we will start uh, our, our Christmas series in the book of Micah. Uh, so we'll start in Micah chapter 1, which is just the book right next to Jonah, another one of the, the, the minor prophets here. So uh, this morning we'll finish out Jonah, we'll start Micah, God willing, next week, and that'll take us into Christmas and then uh, actually even into the new year, uh, God willing. So, uh, But this morning, look with me at Jonah chapter 4, and I'll read this final chapter for us. Actually, I'll start in verse 10 here, just for the sake of context of verse 10 of chapter 3. Uh, when God saw what they did, that is the city of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And in chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Well, merciful Father, as we come to your word now, humble us and, and help us, Lord. We can't make sense of this without the help of your spirit, Lord. So we ask that you'll speak through your word by your spirit to show us more clearly your mercy, your grace to us in Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you have siblings, maybe some of you will be seeing your siblings this week with Thanksgiving, but uh, if you have siblings or if you've spent any time around siblings, one thing you'll know quite clearly is that uh, if there's one thing that siblings are good at, it is sharing, right? Right? Siblings never, ever, ever have a problem with sharing. They never get into arguments. They never get into fights. They never argue over who has what, who gets to play with which toy, or wear which dress, or wear which bow in their hair. That may or may not have happened in my house this morning. Right? That's never a problem with siblings. They, they always go along. They never have a problem with sharing. Right? Now, I have, I have a younger brother, and uh, he's two years younger than me. And when we were kids... Uh, one of the things that would cause us, obviously, to argue with one another or to get into fights was that he always, especially when he were younger, he always wanted to have the same things that I did, right? The same toy or the same Christmas presents, the same Halloween costumes. And looking back on that, that's really sweet. That's really sweet that he wanted to, to follow after me in that way. But at the time, you know, my five, six-year-old brain would sometimes get angry, would get frustrated that my little brother got the same thing that I had. But he got to get the same gift or the same thing that I was given. And we see Jonah here in chapter 4. We see Jonah struggle with a similar problem himself. Because at the end of this book, Jonah has received a great gift from God. But then he is furious when that gift is offered to someone else. But Jonah's problem wasn't that this gift had come to his brother, that his brother got the same gift as him. Jonah's problem was that his enemies were offered the same gift as him. His enemies received the same mercy that he had received. See, what's happened in the book of Jonah so far is that God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria was the most powerful, most cruel nation in the world at that time, and they were uh, a nation that posed a great threat to Jonah's own people, to the people of Israel. And so Jonah fled from this command to go to Nineveh. He went as far away from Nineveh as he could possibly go. He was in a boat going to Tarshish, but God used a great storm and then a great fish to get Jonah's attention, to wake Jonah up to his sin and his failure. He saved Jonah from, from drowning in the storm by swallowing the great fish. And then within the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed and turned back to the Lord. And, and when he was spit out, he, he finally obeyed. 
and he went to Nineveh, and he, and he preached there. He declared that after 40 days, Nineveh was going to be overthrown. And then shockingly, in chapter 3, Nineveh believed Jonah. They believed the message that he preached, and the entire city, from the king down even to the livestock, they put on sackcloth, they humbled themselves, they fasted, they turned to the Lord in repentance. They asked God to mercifully spare them from destruction. And as we read at the end of chapter 3, God relented. He decided not to destroy Nineveh. And you'd think that Jonah, who had himself been saved in a miraculous way by the mercy of God in the fish, who had praised God in chapter 2 for his, for his mercy, for his grace, for his deliverance, you'd think that Jonah, of all people, would be able to rejoice, would be able to celebrate God's mercy towards the Ninevites. But to our surprise, to our shock, when we get to chapter 4, we read this in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Rather than rejoicing at Nineveh's uh, salvation, Jonah is angry that God has spared Nineveh. The prophet who has himself been saved by God's mercy, he is furious when that, mercy, that same mercy comes to his enemies. And Jonah's anger here at the end of the book, it's a warning for us today. It's a challenge for us as we live in a divided world. As we live in a time where it is so easy, where we are so quick to want to bring the hammer down on those we disagree with, on those we oppose, those we may even hate. We are so quick to want our enemies, our opponents to be destroyed, to be owned, to be defeated. And this final, so this final chapter, it's a warning, it's a challenge, it's a reminder to us, it shows us that God's mercy is actually far more shocking, far more sensational than we ever imagined. And so the book ends with a question for us. And this question is, how would we respond if God's sensational mercy came to our enemies? How would we respond? Would we be filled with joy and wonder? Or would it make us exceedingly angry, exceedingly hurt or, or jealous or prideful? Because in reality, we are a lot more like Jonah than we care to admit. Jonah is one of the most relatable of all the prophets because his humanity, his anger, his pride is laid bare before us as we read the book. And so this book ends with an important warning for us this morning, with an important argument for us this morning, which is this, that we have no right to be angry over God's mercy for our enemies. We have no right to be angry over God's mercy to our enemies. That's the argument the narrator makes in the text this morning. And he makes this argument by focusing on, on two major questions in these verses. Two major questions we see come out of these verses. First, does Jonah do well to be angry? And secondly, does God do well to show mercy? Does Jonah do well to be angry? Secondly, does God do well to show mercy? So we'll take each of these in turn. First, does Jonah do well to be angry? Because there's two things uh, in this text that make Jonah really angry, really furious. The first is what happens to Nineveh, and the second is what happens to a plant, to a plant. So we'll, we'll get there. We'll see what that means. But first, uh, we see Jonah's anger over what happens to the city of Nineveh. Because the narrator tells us that Jonah sees how God relents, how he spares Nineveh from destruction. And he tells us that Jonah is not just angry over this, he is exceedingly angry. 
He is absolutely furious that Nineveh has been spared. But think about how surprising this is. Because Jonah was the one who preached to Nineveh. Jonah was the one who prophesied against Nineveh. And Jonah's preaching has been wildly successful. His preaching has been wildly successful. An entire city repented because of the message that he preached. Imagine if you went to like New York City and, and preached a, a short message and then the entire city repented and turned to the Lord crying out for mercy. That'd feel pretty good, right? That, 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 that's, an ama- that's an amazing result from, from, from a very short sermon there in, in chapter 3. Jonah's preaching was wildly successful. Jonah has just won the prophetic Super Bowl. Right? His, the, the core of his enemies, an entire city, has just turned in repentance. He's won the prophetic Super Bowl, but he doesn't go to Disney World. He doesn't celebrate. No, instead, he's angry. He's angry. He's exceedingly angry. He's furious. And for the second time in the book here, he, he prays. He turns to the Lord in prayer. See, Jonah prayed uh, the other time back in chapter 2. Back in Jonah 2, we have Jonah's prayers. He's in the belly of the fish, and he's praying to God, and he praises God for delivering him from death through the fish. His prayer in the belly of the whale is a prayer of praise to God for his mercy, for his deliverance. But Jonah's prayer here in chapter 4 is not a prayer of praise. It's a prayer of complaint. Complaint against God. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you see how wild this prayer is? Jonah says, this is why I ran away. This is why I left, because I know you are merciful. I know you are gracious. Therefore, I want to die, because I know your mercy and your grace. This is a shocking prayer here. What Jonah says about God in this prayer, which says about God's character, that God is gracious and merciful, that he is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. These were foundational words about God in the Old Testament. Jonah didn't make these words up here in chapter 4. These words were first declared by God himself in Exodus 34, verse 6, when God, he passed by Moses on the mountaintop and he declared to Moses who he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This statement, these words became a foundational uh, revelation, a foundational creed for the people of Israel that, that are used throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And each time these words are used in the Old Testament, they're used to call God's people to praise him because of his mercy and grace and steadfast love. Every other time these words are used, they're used to lead God's people to trust and praise him, except here in Jonah chapter 4. Here in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah uses this bedrock creed about God's character, not as a prompt to praise, but as a reason to complain. Actually, as the reason he wants to die. Jonah actually says that this creed, this statement that God is gracious and merciful, this is the whole reason he ran away from God's command in the first place. This is the whole reason why in Jonah chapter 1, when he was commanded to go to Nineveh, to go to his enemies, Jonah instead fled. 
Jonah gives us himself his reason for his disobedience, his reason for fleeing the command of God. He didn't flee from Nineveh from God's command, not just because he was afraid for his own life. He fled because he knew that God is gracious and merciful. He knew that that was God's, that is God's character, that he is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He relents from disaster. Jonah knew this about God, and it led him to flee from his command to go preach to his enemies. Now, why would this be the case? Why would the merciful character of God lead Jonah to flee from his command? Because God, in his character of mercy and grace, he was not sending Jonah to preach to the people of Israel like every other prophet. He was calling Jonah to preach to Nineveh, to preach to his enemies, to preach to a people who who were cruel and evil and dominant and scary and full of fear that posed an existential risk to the people of Israel. He was called to go to them, and Jonah knew that because God is gracious and merciful, that if he was calling a prophet to preach to Nineveh, then there was a chance that God was going to have mercy on Nineveh, that God might spare Jonah's enemies. He might lead them to repentance. And so the thought, this thought led Jonah to flee. Jonah fled at the thought that God's mercy could extend even to his enemies. And then here in chapter 4, he is furious at the reality that God's mercy has come to his enemies, that Nineveh has been spared. God has been gracious to them. He has relented from destroying them. Jonah is so angry over this that he asks God to kill him. He says, Therefore, O Lord, because of your mercy towards my enemies, Take my life away from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And here we see this amazing contrast, this shocking contrast between Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 and his prayer here in chapter 4. Because in chapter 2, Jonah praised God for how God had saved his life. Now in chapter 4, Jonah pleads with God to end his life. He goes from praising God for saving his life to pleading with God to end his life. And both of these prayers are a response to God's mercy. In response, when God's mercy came to Jonah, he praised God for delivering him, for saving his life. But when when God's mercy came to his enemies, Jonah asked God to kill him, to take his life. Jonah would rather die than live in a world where God shows his mercy to his enemies. That's how serious this was for Jonah. So the question for us is why? Why would Jonah feel this way? Why would Jonah feel so strongly? Why would he change so much from chapter 2 to chapter 4? Well, the answer is in, is in Jonah's heart. Why would he do this? Because in his heart, Jonah valued the security and the sanctity of his own people, of Israel, more even than the word of the Lord, more even than the merciful character of God. He cared more about his own nation, about their security, their sanctity, than he cared about God's command or character. And Jonah knew that God sparing Nineveh would mean that Nineveh would continue to be a threat to the security of Israel. He knew that there would continue to be a danger to them. But even more than that, God sending a prophet to Nineveh, God pouring out his mercy on Nineveh, it meant that God's mercy and grace, his steadfast love and his faithfulness, it's not just for the people of Israel. It's actually for all people, even God's enemies. That God's mercy and grace is not just for the people who grew up in the church. 
It's not just for the people who know all the Bible verses and know all the rules and know all the traditions. It's actually even for those who seem so far away from God, who are even hostile to him, who the church sees as a threat. God's mercy is even for them. It's for all people, even his enemies. And this reality of God's mercy, of his sensational mercy for all people, it challenged Jonah's idols. Challenge the idols he was worshiping and trusting in his heart, the idols of national pride and security. God's mercy and grace actually threatened the very things that Jonah held most dear. And so he would rather die than give these idols up. He'd rather die than accept that God's mercy and grace were greater than he ever knew. This is what's shocking about chapter 4, that God's mercy actually becomes bad news to Jonah because it threatened his idols and it came to the wrong people. God's mercy was bad news to Jonah because it threatened his idols and because it came to the wrong people. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we have the same problem? Do we have the same heart issue as Jonah? Have we too elevated our own political or cultural idols over even the character and the mercy of God? Would God's mercy be bad news to us? Would it be offensive or infuriating to us if it came to our enemies, to our opponents? Would we rather die than share God's mercy with people we dislike or people we don't respect or maybe even people we fear or even hate? This is the question this text wants us to wrestle with because this is the question that God wants Jonah to wrestle with. God responds to Jonah's prayer in verse 4. It's the key question in the entire chapter. He asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Other versions of the Bible, they translate this question as, uh, they say, is it right for you to be angry? Or have you any right to be angry? God responds to Jonah's complaint by asking him, what right do you have, Jonah, to be angry over my mercy towards Nineveh? Is it right for you to be angry? Do you have the right to feel this way, to judge God's mercy in this way? And this question is for us today as well. Do we do well to be angry when we see God's mercy come even to our enemies? That's the question. And here in verse 4 and 5, Jonah doesn't, he doesn't reply to this question. And so God then brings in an illustration. He brings in an illustration to help Jonah see his own error. And this illustration then brings us to the second thing in the text that makes Jonah really mad, which is what happens to a plant. What happens to a plant? This is fascinating. This is the part of the story of Jonah that people often forget about. This whole scene with this plant that grows up and disappears. We read it and we think, what, what is this about? What does this even mean? Well, actually, what's happening with the plant is actually the climax of the story. It actually leads us into the very message emphasis of this book. Because what happens is after praying to God, Jonah, he goes outside of the city. He goes out into the desert, into the wilderness. And there, like a, like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum, he decides he's going to sit, he's going to build a booth, and he's going to wait and see. Maybe God will still destroy Nineveh. He's going to wait and see what happens to the city. Maybe God, maybe his prayer works. Maybe God will still destroy his enemies. Jonah's out there in a man-made booth, and God uh, does something nice for Jonah. He appoints a plant. He appoints a plant to rise up and give Jonah some shade from the heat of a desert, some sort of plant or tree that gives Jonah some relief from the hot sun in the wilderness. And we're told that Jonah was exceedingly glad over the plant. 
right? The narrator is just messing with us at this point, right? Jonah was exceedingly angry over Nineveh. Now he's exceedingly glad about the plant, right? So there's something happening there. There's a contrast there. He was exceedingly angry over Nineveh, glad about the plant. But then look what God does in verse 7. I love this. God is just pranking Jonah here. He, 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 as the sun rises the next day, God appoints a worm to attack the plant, and then he appoints a hot, a scorching wind to beat the sun's heat down onto Jonah's head to the point where he starts getting faint, starts getting heat stroke. He starts suffering out in the wilderness. And notice the, the repetition of the word appointed here. We saw this word pop up at the end of chapter 1 when God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And then here, once again, God is appointing, he's overruling elements of his creation to teach Jonah a lesson. That's the, that's the point of all the stuff that God does with the whale, with the plant, with the worm. It's, it, the question for us isn't, how does this work? How could this work scientifically? What does this mean? The point we're meant to see is, look how God is appointing. Look how God is overruling how the God who created the universe is able to use these elements of his creation to teach his prophet a lesson, to teach us a lesson as we read his word. And this lesson becomes clear as once again, Jonah, uh, in the heat of the sun, he complains to God. And he says, once again, it is better for me to die than to live. He wants to die again. And, And once again, God responds, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry over the plant? But this time Jonah responds, he's had enough. He responds in the affirmative. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Angry enough to die over a plant, right? This is a wild ending to this story. But what's actually happening here is, is Jonah, is, he's so upset about the destruction of the plant that once uh, caused him happiness. He's so upset that, about the destruction of the plant that he is angry enough to die. What Jonah doesn't realize is he's actually fallen into the trap that God has set for him. Because his anger at the destruction of the plant is actually preparing Jonah to face the the question that God is going to ask. The the second big question we see in this text, which is, does God do well to show mercy? Does God do well to show mercy? Does Jonah do well to, to be angry? Does God do well to show mercy? God wants to teach Jonah about this through this whole scene with the plant. And that makes sense in the context of the book of Jonah because as we've said in the series, the, one of the key elements of the book of Jonah is satire. It's satire. That doesn't mean that it's not true, but it means as this word was inspired and structured and organized for us, there are satirical, almost comical elements to this story. I said several weeks ago that Jonah is like the, the Michael Scott of prophets. If you've seen The Office, Michael Scott is the, the main character in The Office. He's, he's almost like a sitcom character. He's a prophet who was always doing the opposite of what a good prophet would do. But then as I was reading this scene with the plant, Jonah, he reminded me not of Michael Scott, but of another classic sitcom character. He reminded me of George Costanza from Seinfeld. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Seinfeld, but you know that one of that character, George Costanza, is one of his defining elements as a character is that he gets angry over the smallest, the pettiest things in that show, right? There's a whole episode where George is angry the whole episode because the maid in his hotel didn't untuck his bedsheets like he asked her to. That's his whole plot for the whole episode. He just gets angry over the smallest, pettiest thing. And I thought that because Jonah's kind of having a George Costanza moment here over the plant. He is almost, he's intensely, almost irrationally angry 
over something small and petty. But Jonah's anger over the the plant here is, is actually key for us to see because like a great writer, God has designed this entire scene to get Jonah to this point of petty anger over something small. Because God has a lesson to teach Jonah about how Jonah's anger over something small can actually help him understand God's mercy towards something great. Jonah's anger towards something small can actually help him understand God's mercy for something great. That's what's happening in this scene with the plant. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came to being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Right? See, God, he, he had asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And Jonah responded in the affirmative. He said, yes, I'm angry enough to die. Jonah had cared so much about the plant, it, was, it made him so exceedingly glad that when the plant was destroyed, he was angry enough even to die. And what's interesting here is God doesn't dismiss Jonah's anger at the plant. He doesn't chastise Jonah for his anger about the plant. No, he doesn't dismiss it. Instead, he recognizes the pity, the care that Jonah had for the plant. He says, in effect, he says, you, Jonah, you cared about the plant. You were glad about it. Even though it's a small thing that grew up overnight, that perished in a night, that you had no role in in cultivating, and yet you cared about it. And then God turns the argument back to Nineveh. He says to Jonah, if you cared so much about such a small, momentary plant that you had no role in cultivating, if its destruction was so painful for you, then God's saying to him, should I not care about Nineveh? Should I not care about a great city of humans and animals that I did create, that I did grow, that I did cultivate? God is contrasting his pity, his care for Nineveh with Jonah's pity and Jonah's care for the plant. If Jonah could have such care for such a small, momentary thing, should God himself not care about the uh, much greater, much more significant city of human beings in Nineveh, who he himself created and grew and sustained? So do you see the, the genius of what God is doing here? What he's doing, he's He's using Jonah's own anger to reveal his mercy. He's working through Jonah's anger to get him to see the truth about God's mercy. He asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah affirms, yes, I'm angry enough to die because I cared about the plant. And then God in effect asks him, do I not then do well to pity, to care for, to have mercy on Nineveh? Because if the plant's destruction caused Jonah so much pain, how much more would Nineveh's destruction cause God pain? Because he cares about Nineveh. See, what God is doing is he's trying to get Jonah to see how how Jonah's heart for Nineveh does not line up with God's heart for Nineveh. Jonah did not do well to be angry over God's mercy towards Nineveh because his anger towards his enemy revealed that he didn't feel the same way about his enemies that God does. And that's the point we're meant to see at the end of the book, that even Nineveh, even the enemies of his people, are valuable to God. That even with all their cruelty, all their hostility, all their evil, God still desired to be merciful and gracious to Nineveh. He even sent them a prophet to speak his word. 
He relented when they repented because he is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, willing, willing to relent from judgment, not just against his own people, but even against his enemies. And we see this in how God describes Nineveh. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And look at that last part there. God says, should he not pity a people who are ignorant, a people who don't know their right hand from their left, who do not know what they are doing? Who does God sound like here at the end of the chapter? He sounds like Jesus. It sounds like Jesus who, as he was being crucified on the cross, as he was being hung on a tree outside the city of Jerusalem in the wilderness, as he was crucified on the cross in Luke 23, 34, Jesus himself offers a prayer to God, to his Father. But Jesus' prayer on the cross was not a, a prayer of complaint like Jonah's. It was a prayer of forgiveness. As he was being crucified, Jesus prayed to God on behalf of the very people who were nailing him to the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, as Jesus was being nailed to the cross, as he was suffering the most excruciating, the most humiliating death imaginable, Jesus did not cry out for God to destroy his enemies. He cried out for God to forgive his enemies. Why? Because they did not know what they were doing. Because they did not know their right hand from their left because they were spiritually blind and ignorant. You see, Jonah saw his enemies as evil people that needed to be destroyed. But Jesus saw his enemies as lost people who needed to be forgiven. Jonah went outside of the city hoping to see God's judgment on his enemies. But Jesus went outside of the city to bear God's judgment for his enemies. Jonah cried out for death when his enemies were spared. But Jesus willingly took on death so that his enemies could be spared. And that's the difference. Because you see God's mercy towards Nineveh here, it's only a taste. It's only a picture of his greater mercy to come in Christ. Because in Christ we see how ultimately full of grace and mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness God is, even for his enemies, only for his enemies. Because that's who we are in our sin. We are his enemies. And yet in Christ we can see how willing God is to relent from judgment and destruction for his enemies. He's so willing to the point that he even took that judgment upon himself. And so in Christ the, the mercy that became the hope of Nineveh can become our hope as well. In Christ we who are also spiritually blind, who are also ignorant, who ourselves deserve death and judgment in Christ, through faith in him, we can have our eyes opened to see the mercy and grace of God. By faith in him, we can be spared from the death and judgment we deserve. We can be brought into a new life, a new salvation, a new communion with God in Christ. Does God do well to show mercy? Yes, absolutely he does. Because this is who he is. This is his character. This is who he's ultimately revealed himself to be in Christ. And if he didn't, if he didn't show mercy, then none of us would have any hope. None of us would be here. Does God do well to show mercy? If we look to the cross, 
if we look to Christ, we see that, yes, he does. And praise God that he does. Because that's our only hope. But then the question for us at the end of Jonah 4 is that if we know this, if we've received this mercy in Christ, mercy that can come to even the worst of God's enemies, are we willing to offer the same mercy to others, to even our own enemies? Are we willing to do that? The book of Jonah ends with this question that God asked Jonah. He says, should I not pity that great city? And we don't get Jonah's response. We don't get Jonah's answer to God. We don't know for sure if he got it, if he came to understand God's sensational mercy. And the ending of this book, the ending of the book of Jonah, reminds us of of the ending to one of Jesus' most famous parables. So the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. A parable that's well known to many of us about a father who had two sons. And the younger son comes and demands his inheritance from his father and then goes off to a, a far country and blows it on wild living. But then the younger son, he reaches his lowest desperate point and he decides to return to his father's house and maybe beg to be uh, accepted as a servant to his father. But while he's a long way off, his father sees him and runs out to meet him and embraces him and uh, puts a robe on him and puts a ring on his finger and tells a servant to kill the fattened calf and throws his huge once-in-a-lifetime celebration because the son who is dead is now alive, who is lost is now found. But there's another son in that story that Jesus tells. There's an older brother who had stayed home, who had worked faithfully for his father. And when he saw how uh, his younger brother was welcomed home, how the father had mercifully brought this younger son back into the family, then the older brother in the story, like Jonah, was angry. Because as we've noted, siblings can have a hard time sharing. Siblings can be hurt or angered when their brother or sister gets the same thing that they get, or even worse, gets something that they think they don't deserve. Because at the end of Jesus' parable, the father, he's throwing this huge party for the younger brother. But the older brother is too angry to go in. He refuses to go in. And so the father comes out to him to try and get him to go into the party. And like Jonah, the older brother, he complains to his father. He says that he has served him for many years. And yet his father has never thrown him a party, never thrown him a celebration like this. The kind of celebration he's throwing to this younger brother devoured his father's property in a cruel and evil way. Then the father responds, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Essentially, the father, he, he asked the older brother, do you do well to be angry? Should I not welcome? Should I not pity? Should I not have mercy on this son who is dead but is alive, who is lost and is found? And like Jonah, we don't get the older brother's answer in Luke 15. The story ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know how he responds. And the reason for that is because Jonah's parable, or Jesus' parable, was targeted at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who in their pride, in their hypocrisy, they were angry, they were furious that sinners were being welcomed by Jesus, that they were coming and eating with Jesus. Like Jonah, these religious leaders were angry that God's mercy was coming to the wrong people. And so then, both the ending of the book of Jonah, the ending of the prodigal son in Luke 15, it forces us to ask the question, do we do well to be angry when God's mercy comes to our enemies? 
Do our own idols, does our own spiritual or moral pride keep us from offering God's mercy to our enemies? Because if we've accepted, if we've received God's mercy in Christ, are we willing to share that mercy even with the wrong people? Are we willing to share this mercy with that person who you know voted differently than you? Are you willing to share this mercy with that neighbor on your street you just wish would just move away? With that person in your office you just hope would get fired? With that kid at school or that other student who you just really hope would get expelled or would move to a new school? Are you willing to share that mercy with that political group that you wish would just disappear? With that country that you wish would just get written off the map? Are you willing to share God's mercy with these people? Is your understanding of God's character, of his mercy, is it big enough, is it sensational enough to include these people, to include even our opponents, even our enemies? Do you see these people as evil enemies to be destroyed or as lost sinners who need mercy? Do you believe this good news that the Lord is merciful and gracious? That he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That he's willing to relent from disaster and judgment. Do you believe this good news in Christ? Have you received this mercy yourself? Have you received this mercy yourself through faith in Christ? And if you have, do you see that we who have received such sensational mercy in Christ, we have no right to withhold that mercy from our enemies. We have no right to be angry over God's mercy to our enemies. In fact, if we truly know God's sensational mercy in Christ, if we truly know this, then we should be the ones running to lead the charge to offer this mercy even to our enemies, to run into the wilderness ourselves, to take up our own crosses and even lay down our own lives so that more blind, lost, ignorant people might come to know the wonder of God's sensational mercy in Christ. And if we are doing that, if that is our mission as a church, then we will indeed be doing well. So let me pray for us. Merciful Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it convicts us how it reveals to us the idols in our own heart. And so we ask you to help us cast off those idols. Help us not to see our enemies or our opponents or people we disagree with. Help us not to see them as, as enemies to be destroyed, but as lost and blind people who need mercy, who need forgiveness. Help us to be willing to lay down our own lives, to give of our time, of our comfort, of our reputations, of our resources, to reach more of these people, to share with them your mercy that they might come to know that you are a God who is merciful and gracious. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, willing to relent from judgment, that you are a God who has taken that ultimate judgment upon yourself in Christ, that we might have our eyes open, that we might know you. So open the eyes of those who are, who are still lost in, in blindness and ignorance, and then help us who know your mercy to be willing to share it with others, even with our enemies, for your glory for their good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll close with one final song together.
generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.